inherent in being a performer is this kind of like um, psychological voyeurism where I get to actually figure out so much about the composer or what they've put into this piece. And I think to some extent performance is like a massive exercise in empathy. Yeah, I don't understand performance at all. Like I write these things and I have no idea why anyone would want to do them. Hmm. You know, so... Um, I would think the point of performance from your point of view is how to be the creative person. It's like, here is this composer who threw a softball to me. But, you know, the point of music is to be the person who hits this softball for a home run. So... Well, I mean, so I think about the time that I was in the car with Nico, and he played me the recording of Just. Just uh-huh. And I, like, Just lost my mind. I loved it so, 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 so much. But also, like, you know, the way that piece wants to be listened to and the way we were listening to it weren't the same thing at all either because we were in a car, we were driving up to, like, go to a barbecue and drink rosé and, like, screaming about this very contemplative and, and soft piece. Right. Just and my first thought was, I want to go to the place I know this piece will take me if I let it, which I'm not letting it do right now because I'm having a social moment. Right. So I did listen to it by myself, but more than that, I wanted to inhabit it. And, like, basically from that moment on, figured out a scheme so that I could perform it. Thank you for that, by the way. Oh, so my pleasure, because <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even feel like I got to the place with that piece that I, that I knew, that I could sort of see, until I actually inhabited it. And, I mean, that's a weird thing, right? There's so many weird parts of that process. It's like understanding relatively quickly... The possibility of having an emotion later. You know, that's a weird one. Yeah. So that bit of audio was from an interview I did with the composer David Lang a while back for a completely different episode of the show, actually. But what we were talking about, it kind of stuck with me, and actually, I've been kind of stuck on it. This idea that I don't ever really experience a piece unless I inhabit it, unless I get to perform it. There's a specific quirk to music, particularly classical music, where more often than not, there is a performer someone who serves as this sort of middleman who's there to do all the interpreting for the audience. That's weird, right? Like, when you read a book, the author writes it, and you, the reader, you read it. When you look at a painting, you are looking directly at the artist's work. And even when you listen to The Beatles, 
You're listening to the composers. You're hearing the piece as they intended it. But almost every time you hear a piece of classical music, and by the way, this also applies to, you know, watching a play or a piece of dance, you're kind of dealing with an interloper, an interpreter who stands between you and the composer. I'm Nadia Sirota, and today on the show, we're going to explore the role of the performer. By the way, there's actually some kind of explicit language in this episode, so maybe this isn't really the one for kids. So that role, the interloper, that's my job as a violist, and it's a job that holds a lot of responsibility. If you mess up, the composer looks bad, the piece looks bad. So what makes for a bad performance? Aside from straight-up wrong notes and rhythms, it's an issue of ensemble, of everyone on stage being on the same page, thinking in the same way. Their brains have to be in tune with each other. All of these inaudible elements, thinking patterns, have to mesh with each other. But what happens when the people on stage just don't think the same way? What if they have different senses of tuning, of time? What happens if they don't even speak the same language? The cellist Yo-Yo Ma first started the Silk Road Ensemble in 1998. The group is made up of musicians playing instruments from all along the Silk Road, an ancient trade route connecting China to the Mediterranean. When we talk about the Silk Road, we are always talking about the silk and the spices, but probably the biggest interaction that would have happened would have happened through music. This means music played by Western instruments like Yo-Yo Ma's cello, but also instruments from the Middle East, from India, from China. And all of these instruments come with very rich musical traditions, traditions which each have very different ways of approaching performance and music-making. My name is Johnny Gandelsman. My name is Wu Man. Hi, I'm Sandeep Das. I play, play violin. Ancient Chinese instrument called pipa. I play tabla, which is a percussion instrument mainly from the northern part of India. Okay, so this is a group of people who are immensely talented, who've been studying their instruments for their entire lives, who individually represent the very apex of their art. But each of them has learned music very differently. I didn't go to a school of music or a college of music. I went and lived with my guru. Um, I lived with him for 12 years. (laughs) Uh, It was like being in a Shaolin camp. There was no mercy. So average practice was 8 to 10 hours a day. And he would always say, work on your tongue first, and it will automatically transfer into your hands. And start with the right hand. You know, how to draw the sound. And then you add it the left hand. How to make bow changes. How you hold the instrument, how you put a finger on the strings, on the frets. 
So when musicians that come from different countries and speak different languages and play completely different types of instruments come together to play music, they're going to have to overcome a couple of significant hurdles. And one really kind of big one is the way each musician conceives of counting and time. I remember very clearly my Guruji loved horses. And in the evenings, we would go for rides. And uh, once he said, what's the horse telling you? And, you know, as a 12-year-old kid, the horse doesn't tell you anything. And he said, isn't it going... And I was like, yeah. That was how I learned my five and four. Where I grew up, um, the rhythm of that tradition mostly... Uh, very square. Always I say one, two, three, four, or one, two, one, two. Um, we never count like one and two and three and four and we don't use end. We just uh, one, two, three, four. Okay, so one, what Wuman is talking two, about here is three, the Western musical four. tradition one, of subdividing. Two, We've come up with a kind of jargon to talk about one, portions of beats. Two, we actually three, say one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a to three, kind of cut up beats into little bits. One, I might even say like, hey, let's start on the e of three, which means the second sixteenth note of beat three. It's weird. Anyway, that's what she's talking about. Three, four. You know, my experience in school was that that we were allowed to and even encouraged to to stretch time within rhythmic passages, you know. Here it gets slower, here it gets a little bit faster. Okay, so we have Johnny, trained in Western classical music who likes to use a lot of rubato, stretching and pulling the pulse. We have Wuman, trained in China, who thinks squarely in four with no subdivisions. And we have Sandeep, who learned complex meters orally from his guru. In fact... He learned everything orally. Sandeep doesn't read music. I said, listen, man, I can't read, so can you make me a MIDI recording? A MIDI recording is like a computerized rendering of the music. He sent me a MIDI recording and an email of like 10 pages. (laughs) It's like, okay, at 3 minutes, 15 seconds, you have to do this. At 4 minutes, 7, you have to do this. And so I tried that, and then I was like, okay, no, 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 no. I should trust my instincts and just listen to it first. Okay, so uh, he's talking about the composer Evan Zaporin, who in 2006 wrote a piece for these guys called Sulva Sutra. So Sulva Sutra is based on an ancient Sanskrit treatise, which um, basically talks about the creation of the universe. The creation of the universe as depicted in three movements— And now one of these movements is really, really rhythmically tricky and demands that all of these different versions of time play nice together. Now, if they can't, if they can't find common ground, the piece will fall flat. It'll literally fall apart. So the bar is about... Four, five, four. 
But that's how this piece is constructed, with underlying in the pipa being... I'm like a cool, keep the same pattern again, 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 and the strings doing so complicated things, flow on the top, and the tabla keep busy, busy, solo, like show off. It's very interesting. The cycle is six beats here, but for Sandeep it's like nine and a half. It's very cool to me that even musicians who are sharing a stage and playing the same piece can have completely different experiences of performing. And so the thing is, of course this can be true of musicians who are trained in the same system. Brains are weird, people are different. But the cool, kind of magic-y thing is that in making music, people have to find a way to kind of bridge gaps between perspectives and find the art somewhere in between. Thanks, man. <laughs> it's about looking at the same thing from a different perspective, but then doing away with the perspective and trying to understand the soul. <laughs> so like, okay, Western, the way you learn is different, the way you read notes, but ultimately you are not playing those notes. You are putting in your feel, your thought that that's between those notes. And that's where it's similar. I think it's when you move off of that page and basically bring in the human element and, and make that piece live. And the audience sees it. Bringing in the human element, the performer. This is a lovely thing to watch, right? To see people individuals interacting on a high level, relying on each other while accessing this sort of unnameable mental state. The ecstasy of music making. But what happens when what the performer is doing is not really what the composer intended? Stick around. I just want it all. Just 
At Q2 Music, we believe that to discover a new artist, to hear a new piece of music can be a transformative experience. We strive to create these experiences by sharing the music of those who make sense of our world differently, through sound. With our 24-7 music stream, connect to an international audience united by a passion for discovery. Find us online at q2music.org. I have heard performances of my music which were terribly bad. And I remember one performance and I said, oh God, that's the worst thing I ever heard. And then I got six minutes standing ovations. I was so disappointed, but still people were deeply impressed. This is Georg Friedrich Haas. I'm Georg Friedrich Haas, composer, and I'm He teaches right here in New York. Professor at Columbia University. And as everybody is able to hear, English is my second language. And I decided when I was 60 to start a new life in a new continent. And until now, I would say this was the best idea of my life. Haas writes this music that is both incredibly difficult and incredibly beautiful. He often writes pieces with ultra-specific types of tuning derived from the very highest partials in the harmonic series. Notes usually all but inaudible to our ears. Notes that make up timbre. I first became aware of Haas when I heard the Jack Quartet play his third string quartet about 10 years ago at a small New York City venue called The Tank. This piece was written to be performed in complete darkness. In the technical writer I wrote up for it, I described it as like India ink blackness. You should not see your hand in front of your face. Hello, testing. That's Kevin McFarland. Hi, I'm Kevin McFarland. Formerly uh, of the Jack Quartet. From the Jack Quartet. Uh, Soon to be not of the Jack Quartet any longer, probably by the time you're hearing this. The Jacks became pretty well known for performing this piece. One reviewer referred to what we were doing as like bats echolocating. I've always liked that. There's this disorientation that happens, which is pretty cool. Like, you sort of lose track of where you are and what's happening. There's so many visual markers of the passage of time that when you don't have those, um, you can't tell whether it's been five minutes or half an hour. This performance left such an impression on me. I've seen literally thousands of concerts of new music, but there's something about the darkness, about the disorientation, that put me into this funny, introspective, dreamy, receptive state. It was kind of scary. It was definitely memorable. Live performance can be exhilarating. It can be transcendent. But also, there is the very real possibility of failure that you might witness a train wreck. We love Saturday Night Live because there's a chance we might see a comedian break, crack up midline. But what happens when you, the audience member, 
can't spot the mistake. What if you even like it? When I was opera performed in London, I had huge communication problems with the conductor. And just before then the climax of the opera, everything fell down and the orchestra just tried to survive. And of course the climax was no climax and nothing happened. But the singers gave what they had. The orchestra, many of them, the orchestra gave what they had. And I came to stage and it was a huge applause. And I heard, I had the feeling 500, maybe it was less, who, who, who shouted bravo. And I think, oh God, you have not heard the piece. And I asked myself, what is it, what we are doing? And I don't know it. I have definitely been involved in some performances like that where, you know, everything goes wrong and you're like, what was that? What did we just do? Because we did not play what the composer wanted us to, but we played something and the audience connected with it. But what did they connect with? If you hear a school performance of the magic flute, of course it's terrible, but you still will be touched. And I think what we should try as composers is to find something, hope that we have something in our music which survives even if it is, even if everything is not working. Maybe we composers are not important. Important are those who try to create what we have written and the fact that they are trying to do it makes the art. So there's really two different ideas here. One is that in a really well-crafted piece like the Mozart, there's something there that is entirely performance-resistant, that persists and communicates even if a performance is less than ideal. The other side here is really interesting to me. And that is the idea that witnessing someone struggle to execute a score, to some extent, is a captivating thing to watch in and of itself. It's a fact that there is one musician or a group of musicians who desperately try to perform what is written. It may be the worst nonsense, but only the fact that they try to get it. And that they create this relationship of submission to the score. This creates an emotional situation which directly speaks to the audience. And I decided this is too weak for me. I don't want to do that. I must write a music where the sound itself is strong enough and not the fact that somebody is afraid to play the wrong pages. That very fundamental thing that a composer is a dominant person and the performers are submissive. When I thought about the idea of submission, I understood that's not the music. I had a good friend who was a viola player and he also saved the concert of mine. So basically, Haas had written a piece for soprano and orchestra 
and the soprano bailed way last minute. So Haas adapted it for his friend, the viola player. And my friend came to my house and he practiced this piece. And this was a fundamental experience for me to listen to him practicing. Hmm. I love to speak with him about music. It was uh, very important what we did when we spoke, especially Schubert. We could speak hours about Schubert. And, and now he could not speak about Schubert with me because he had to waste his time by practicing these weird intervals which I have composed. You must be conscious as a composer. You steal time. Still, maybe the wrong word. You take time. If you take time, you take something from everybody. You must give them something back. And this is what I try to do in my music. I know my music is extremely difficult. I know it's very, very complicated to find the intonations of these chords. But when you get them, the sound is so beautiful that you that you say, "Oh yes." It made sense. I love this. I love that Haas wants to give the audience something that transcends just watching the performer struggle to play the notes. And then he wants to give the performer something back that is greater than just the sports endorphin high element of executing a hard thing. A couple minutes ago, when Haas was explaining this dynamic between the composer and performer, he put it in terms of dominance and submission. A composer is a dominant person and the performers are submissive. And actually, this is not inconsequential. Recently, Haas came out of the closet as the dominant member of a dominant-submissive relationship with his wife and partner, Melina Williams, now Williams Haas, who, as a writer and sex educator, has been very public about their relationship. She explained in a recent speech at the Playground Sexuality Conference in Toronto that Haas is freshly out as a kinky person. This is a trait that he had denied and suppressed for years leading to three failed marriages and his general misery. I got a message on OkCupid from a gentleman who wrote me a very lovely message. And I looked at some of his music on YouTube, and it was like weird contemporary music. And I was like, oh, this is going to be that shit. It sounds like someone took a cat, set it on fire, and put it in a piano. (laughs) But it was actually, it didn't sound like that at all. It was very interesting and deep and wonderful. And I was like, okay, great. And his profile had so many fuck-ups on it. He had no picture. He had syntactical errors. And I was like, uh. He's like, I'm a composer, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit known, so I, I'm a little bit shy about putting my picture up, but I can send you pictures. I will take them myself. And sent me three of the worst <laughs> selfies I in my life. They were terrible. And I said, okay, anyone who would take this picture and send it to someone who they're trying to fuck is okay. <laughs> I felt terribly guilty about my sexual fantasies and about my wishes, about my desires. And the sadness about this guiltiness. Maybe this is why I felt so connected with, with Schubert. 
Schubert was gay. Being a gay person in 1825 in Austria in this restrictive system would mean that he never saw a chance to live his love or to know it is not possible to have a fulfilled sexual life. This sadness is one of the fundamentals of the sadness in my music. When you compose a piece, you're in a power dynamic with the performers. You're essentially telling them what to do. Um, it, I've been talking about this with some friends long before Haas came out about this. We were saying, well, isn't writing a really complex modernist musical score, um, you know, you're writing this extremely specific instructions and telling people what to do with their bodies. Like, isn't that kind of this crazy BDSM kink thing? And it's also interesting, if you go to the scene, there's much more submissives than dominance because it's difficult to be a dominant. I will explain why. Because um, masochism means that you enjoy the endorphins which you get by pain. And masochists never enjoy the pain. And here they enjoy what is, yeah, it's a side effect of the pain. And being a sadist in sexual sense means that you have to take care on your submissive, exactly to find this border. And this is a lesson I think especially people in positions of power need to know. He listens to any criticism, no matter how harsh, with completely open ears. So there have been times I've said to him, sir, no, we don't, you can't know. And he's like, how did I fuck up? Tell me. And this is to me what is the, the safety valve that you have, especially in a relationship where you have people who are of equal value but on unequal power footing. So the person who has the power absolutely has got to be prepared to say, I fucked up. They have to be prepared to say, I'm sorry. They have to be prepared to listen and to hear with an open heart. And this is the thing that has enabled me to feel entirely safe in this situation. As a submissive and as the bottom and as the slave, I have a reflex to, to let him do what he's going to do. He's the owner, he's the dog. He's a master, but he's also a very temperamental artist to the point where, you know, more recently at the, at the opening, there was a problem and I grabbed him and physically restrained him. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I saved several lives in the, in the artistic community in Europe. At least, at least two conductors owe me their lives. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, you know, while it would be completely inappropriate for some slaves to be like, no, no, sir, no, and grab them by the back of the collar and stop them from running that stage, I have to have the ovaries to do that. <laughs> because that is my job. It's not different though, to any other way of uh, sexual being together. If one of the partners just does what he, what he wants, what he wants, maybe in a more normal situation, it will not be very interesting. And in the same way, it is important to find exactly what do they need, what do they want. 
And I'm so happy about my wonderful partner, Molina. And every day I'm glad about the amazing gift of her submission. And in the same way, I think we composers should be happy about the amazing gift of the performers who give us the gift of their time. We're playing this music because we love it. We're not like being beaten into submission by the composer. It's like, hey, this is a, a cool, uh, cool structure to be part of. It, it's it's a, you know a game, and and we have agency in that. We get to say, you know, there, there's so much that we are in control of, actually. One of, uh, one of my, the biggest successes of my life I had when I did a rehearsal with artists. And then I asked them once, please give me the time to work on the intonation of one chord. And we did it. We worked 20 minutes on one chord. And then they applauded. And <laughs> it, is, it was a spontaneous reaction of professional orchestra musicians. Uh, and this is where I, where I think, yes, this is what I want to get. We must get a result, which is so, let's call it amazing. I don't know what, what to say. Uh, that it is, uh, that it uh, gives you something back for this work which I have done. I really love this story because what Haas is talking about is such like a perfect moment, you know? It's a whole bunch of people working together on a problem. And it takes a lot of weird and subtle adjustment, really kind of hard and esoteric work. But when the thing is right, that's it. All of a sudden, you have an emotional response. Call it catharsis, even. And that's sort of the artistic holy grail, right? But what's weird is this is an emotion... That's kind of the performer's own. It's a secret one. One that is not perceptible to the audience, to those who are hearing it. But one that's just for the players. What is the use of that? Why even build that into a piece? I think, personally, one of the most satisfying artistic experiences I ever had as a performer was participating in a piece by the Icelandic artist Ragnar Kjartansson, who's known for, among other things, making massive, grueling durational works using music as a starting point. Maybe it's like running a marathon. You can't really prepare for it. Maybe you can kind of prepare for them when you're in it. Um, That's Bryce. Hello, I'm Bryce Desner. Composer. I write a love music for orchestras and various ensembles. Many of you will know him as a guitarist in the band The National. And I also play in a band called The National. And we're talking about a collaboration between The National and Ragnar Kjartansson, in which The National played their song Sorrow, which is the song from 2010 off High Violet, on a loop for a really long time. And he had this idea that we would perform it Actually, at first he suggested for 12 hours straight. They settled on six hours, and they did it. They played their song, Sorrow, on a loop for six hours straight without so much as stopping to pee. I think in the beginning I was thinking, how am I going to get through this? 
you know, in the first, like, even 15 repetitions are the most exhausting somehow. But then your mind, I think it's like a state of meditation. You just settle into this total immersion and kind of, um, you know, boredom sets in and then this is kind of euphoria. We said it was like the best band practice we'd ever had, playing that same song over and over again. I was actually improvising a lot, so I was able to kind of reinterpret the song 108 times, I think, I think is how many times we played it. 108 times. Yeah. So, as I alluded to earlier, this wasn't the first time Ragnar played with this idea. It's a theme in a lot of his work, repeating a process for hours, sometimes weeks on end, in impressive feats of artistic endurance. I played in a piece of his called Bliss, in which we did a similar thing with a bit of a Mozart opera. Yeah, Bliss was a piece which was about playing and performing almost the last act of the Marriage of Figaro. It's like the one before the fast finale. That's Ragnar. Hello, hello, hello. My <laughs> name is Ragnar Kjartansson, and I am a visual artist, or a fine artist, or whatever that's called. <laughs> so, end of Marriage of Figaro. It's like this kind of mega beautiful music where the Count asks for forgiveness, and the Countess grants him forgiveness, and everybody sings about forgiveness, and we repeat it over and over again for, uh, how are you, for 12 hours. Yeah, we actually did this one for the full proposed 12 hours. Everybody was in very much period costume, and the whole uh, set was totally like a cliché, basic Marisa Figaro. And, and that was sort of like making a, making a sculpture out of this beautiful part of music by Mozart. To be perfectly honest, this was the most physically demanding thing I have ever done in my life. Like, I might literally have back problems as a result of this shit. But it was so beautiful. I deal with stretching out time and repetition. And I always really just think about it as turning something that's performative and narrative into something non-narrative and sculptural or painterly. So it's this idea that if you take something like music that happens over time and just keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it, that it actually has this way of almost freezing it in time, turning it, like Ragnar says, into something like a sculpture or a painting, letting the audience sort of walk around it and see it from every angle. I sort of really look at it as like something, uh, you know, maybe it lures you in as a viewer or, or it doesn't. And I never want to create pieces that kind of demand on the audience that you have to sit and watch it. But, you know, maybe it's intriguing to sit and watch it. You can spend time with it or you cannot spend time with it. But if the audience stays for more than 
10 minutes, maybe three repetitions of the song, they become part of the performance themselves. It creates this really tight bond with the people who stick it out with you. Like they're really there to support you. There was a good 200, maybe even 300 people who pretty much stayed the whole time. And so it felt that we really felt communion with them, like they were part of it, that they were exhausted as well, they were sweating, they weren't taking a pee break either. And so that feeling of kind of communion was super intense. When we were performing Bliss, there was this moment as the evening kind of wore on when the audience started applauding right as we were ending one cycle and beginning another. And with each repetition, the applause got longer and longer and longer. They were actually trying to give us a moment to breathe in between iterations of this piece. And, you know, it actually it became very touching that they cared for us in that way. And in that way, they sort of, you know, became a part of the piece themselves. Matt breaks down at one point because he just can't sing anymore, and the audience just starts singing. You would never find that moment unless you knew the piece, but like at hour five, you know, five hours, 30 minutes, all of a sudden the audience sings really loud the whole song on their own. Which was for us, again, in the moment was super powerful. And it's in the, in the six hour movie, it's just a detail. Yeah, so this little detail that Bryce just talked about, that the piece is actually a film, this is actually really important. The performance of A Lot of Sorrow at PS1 isn't actually the final version of the piece. The whole six-hour concert was filmed as a sort of music documentary, cut together and now screens as an exhibition in museums and galleries. And it's become a kind of successful work now that travels the world over. A lot of sorrow is very much a cinematic thing, to create like a classic concert MTV thing, like in a typical concert film, but just a film that the song just does not stop. Ultimately, probably for Ragnar as an artist, is probably that's the piece. It's not the performance, the piece is the video. So this is where things start getting kind of twisted. Because the more we talk about Ragnar's work, the farther into it we go, the more Ragnar's idea of what his work is and what it's for becomes very different from how it affected the performers who were part of making it. Honestly, from how it affected me. So for example, when we were performing Bliss... There was more than one time that I looked over to see my fellow musicians and saw them literally weeping as they were playing their instruments, just completely overwhelmed with the power of what we were doing. I kind of look at it as a beautiful side effect. Because it's not made as an experience for for the performers. I just always hope that, you know, that people feel good <laughs> when they're doing stuff. Yeah. 
I was just thinking, like, in my life, um, I don't listen to a lot of music. Like, in my spare time, almost all of the music that I participate in is as a performer. Um, and, like, in a, in a way, none of it was designed to be experienced that way. Like, I, I'm, I'm supposed to just sort of exist as a conduit so other people can listen to it. But that's my main access point to this stuff as a as a work of art is as a performer. So I, it's kind of weird that I'm like experiencing it all wrong or something or like from the wrong side of the TV set. Um, maybe that's like why I want to make this show is because I feel like there's all of this stuff that for me is like what makes up music. <laughs> I don't know. It's just strange to me that my entire experience of music um, is is like – unintended Hi, this is Ben Wasquita from New York City. Links to all the music featured on today's show are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. This episode of Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sirota, Hannes Brown, Mead Bernard, and Alex Overington, with help from John Hanrahan. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Thanks to our guests, David Lang, Sandeep Das, Wu Mon, Johnny Gandelsman, Georg Friedrich Haas, Melina Williams Haas, Kevin McFarlane, Bryce Dessner, and Ragnar Kjartensen, with special thanks to the Playground Sexuality Conference in Toronto and to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. Many thanks to our Season 3 Kickstarter supporters, including Susan Ambrose, Jeremy Sager, Michael and Lisa Overington, and Richard Pace. <laughs>